Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. In the year 1982, Star Trek is back, baby. 82. What year is this? 2020. Oh, okay. If the That's... film didn't come out this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a new one. We're looking at an old one today. Uh, that is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So uh, this is Matt. This is Luke. And welcome to our... Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Now we're looking at one of the uh, gold standards of sci-fi here. So we need to bring in some gold standard uh, Trek guests to have a chat about it, I think. Uh, so today we do have some guests. We have uh, Norman Lau and John Champion coming in from Mission Log, where they um, go over every Trek episode and movie since 2012, is it? Uh, yeah, Mission Log started in August of 2012. It seems like yesterday, and it seems like 100 years ago. Right. Well, and, it was uh, kind of yesterday for me, John, because I'm only yes. new to the, to the co-host chair. Yeah, Norman started with us in January of this year, so we're three months into it, and uh, full steam ahead. It's been going great. And that's where we really wanted to bring you guys in. Uh, I heard the first episode you guys had with Norman, where he started talked a little bit about Khan. I'm like, this guy needs to talk a lot more about Khan. And uh, John, I'm sure you might have a few different thoughts than you did uh, five years ago or so when you did this the first time. Yeah, so. Wow, it's been that long. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that was a spit take guess, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I guess we'll start. Uh, Luke, you're the youngest. Where did this movie come into your life? Well, I definitely have clear childhood memories of watching Star Trek on TV and seeing the motion picture. I don't have childhood memories of seeing this one. It wasn't until I was in, like, junior school and got into, like, super into Star Trek and bought all the DVDs myself that I remember watching this one. But since then, I've probably watched it at least once a year. Yeah, as for me, um, I think the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was uh, Return of the Jedi. Mm. Uh, shortly after... I remember my dad taking me to see Star Trek Three, and we came in a little late, so we walked in, and it's like right in the Genesis planet. Right. And I would have been about four years old at the time. So very shortly after that, of course, he had to show me Khan, so I got what was happening. Okay. Um, Star Trek already playing a lot in our house. And um, this movie for me has what I call Big Lebowski Syndrome. <laughs> I, I've seen it so many times. I can't watch it, though I haven't watched it for a few years now, so I actually quite enjoyed watching it last night and kind of uh, getting deeper into the, you know, really paying attention to the design and things. Um, John, what was, your, what was your first time with this movie? Uh, when it came out in 1982, and, and I'll, I'll even preface that by saying, you know, my Star Trek theatrical 
experience started with uh, the motion picture. I remember going with my mom. I remember having the McDonald's Happy Meal. Um, hopefully somewhere at my parents' house, maybe even some of those prizes that came in the Happy Meal are still there. Um, I remember the really flimsy little like blue transparent watch, uh, or translucent, I should say, watch. Uh, so I, I was bought into Star Trek on the big screen from the beginning. And um, there was a lot of anticipation around Star Trek II, and I remember obviously well pre-internet days, but there being a lot of anticipation about whether or not Spock would make it to the end of the movie, and then what would happen after that. Um, and haven't missed a trek in the theater since then. I don't think I've, have you? As, well, I really feel young now because I didn't see any track in the theater until the 2000, uh, <laughs> 2009. Yeah. Um, and I, although I did get the Burger King meal toys for that one, um, <laughs> but I was in Spain. I was in Spain. So when I press it, it says, Alerta Rioja. <laughs> nice. That is awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I would have been old enough to see a couple of the next gen ones, but I guess my parents just never took me. Were they like, what sort of rating were they? Uh, were they kind of 12s and stuff? That, uh, yeah, I think, it, I think First Contact was PG-13 in the States. Uh, so yeah, I, I may have actually been too young to see them. <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, 1990 I was born, so. <laughs> and, and Norman, I know you have a story for this one. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, recapped this on Mission Log when I was telling John about my fandom. And in 1982, I was 10 years old, so... You know, you're all smart people out there. You can do the math. That makes me 21. <laughs> now, in 1982, uh, I, was at, I was at tennis camp in Oberlin, Ohio. And my dad, I, I told the story on Mission Log, my dad knew I was going to be homesick. So he gave me this digital watch. And it had this really cool kind of like this UFO space invadery kind of game. Because you're talking about, at best, an 8-bit digital watch. And he says, take care of it. You know, um, I'll pick you up in a week or two. So the very last day of camp, I can't wait. My dad's coming to pick me up. He's driving two, two and a half hours from where we lived. And I take my watch off and put my wallet and my keys, you know, by the, by the post of where, where, you, uh, where you attach the, the, the tennis court tent. And I was playing doubles with my brother and they were clay courts. And the reason why I remember this is because one of my brother's partners slid all the way across his box into that pole and fell on my watch and cracked the screen in half. And I was devastated. I mean, this is, I'm a 10 year old boy, I'm devastated. So my dad picked me up and I told him about my watch and I was crying inconsolably. And he said, well, why don't we go check out a movie downtown? And I go, okay. And he goes, there's a new Star Trek movie playing. I go, okay, let's go watch the new Star Trek movie. And it was Wrath of Khan. My dad was sitting next to me and my tears dried up until the very end when Spock died, <laughs> spoiler alert. And I've been a fan of Star Trek II ever since. I told John this, he goes, I didn't know that was your favorite Star Trek movie. And I corrected John, I said, no, it's my favorite movie of all time. It's, it's like when you ask people to make those lists, they're like, what's your favorite horror movie? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. What's your favorite <laughs> musical? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Everything else just falls to the wayside after that. No, seriously, I, I've watched that movie 
ad nauseum more times than I can remember to the point where I'm doing music cues in my head. I'm doing sound effects in my head. I'm even like looking, I'm like, you know, it's just there. It's, it's part of the fabric of who I am as, as a Star Trek fan and as a movie fan. And it's probably the first time I fell in love with James Horner, you know, as a, as a, um, a soundtrack score uh, composer. Um, ILM crushed it on those effects. Uh, and one of the last times we really saw like major funding get put into special effects, especially the Battle of the Matar Nebula. I mean, how awesome is that, right? <laughs> so good. There's, I'm telling you, like, there's nothing cooler in Star Trek combat than the scene where the where the Reliance, the phasers are ripping right by the Enterprise. One's going off in the distance, the other one's just stitching the side, you know, of the yeah. hull, like right across engineering. Oh, awesome! I can go on forever. Which is why you brought me here, but <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I haven't watched this recently is like basically the dialogue of this movie is like on an endless loop in my subconscious somewhere. So I don't really need to watch it. <laughs> uh, I think a quote from this movie comes to mind, you know, almost every day, like a big chance to get away from it all or uh, things like that. So. <laughs> Well, and I think like any movie or show that you love, you know, you, you need a little bit of distance from it every now and then. So that, that makes me look forward to going back and watching it. And there's only a few movies like that where uh, I've just watched over and over and over again. That's one of them. Uh, Star Trek Motion Picture, Star Trek IV, um, outside of Trek, things like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Back to the Future uh, or certain Hitchcock movies like North by Northwest, I know that I love them so much that I have to build in a little distance because I know I'll appreciate it that much more when I go back for a rewatch. You know, you almost have to, to think about that whole deserted island list a different way because if you know movies that well, why bring that movie along? Because you yeah. already know it that well. Right. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And also yeah, think- it, it, it makes for um, having the director's cuts like a little bit more special because sometimes the beats on director's cuts don't fall in line with the beats of the theatrical cut that you've seen for a long, long, long time, like yeah, maybe 20 yeah. years prior to when they released the director's cuts. Right. Yeah, this may have been the first time I actually watched it on Blu-ray. I had the Blu-ray set from like 2009. So uh, the time and seeing it in nice high definition was uh, a nice, nice mind blast. <laughs> I don't think I've seen the director's cut of this one. I didn't want the Blu-ray was actually not this time, the director's right. cut. Um, I've seen it at some point. Uh, I, I remember like uh, Mr. Was it Preston Prescott is um, Scotty's nephew, but they don't mention it. I've the, heard the that mentioned cut. as a deleted scene, but I've never. I know seen I've the seen cut. it, but yeah, yeah uh, this week that's not what I was watching because <laughs> that makes it make a lot more sense when he turns up on the bridge holding him. Yeah, exactly, because Scotty usually doesn't get that uh, that that cut up about things. <laughs> no, unless it's in his engine room in specific. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, Peter Preston, um, yep. played by Ike Eisenman. Yes. Yes. That's it. Of Escape to Witch Mountain and Return to Witch Mountain. Film. Oh no way! Whoa. Oh yeah! Oh okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. putting that together. All right. I don't. And think then Kim I've Richards. Kim Richards of Tough Turf fame. Also wow. James Spader. Right on. Yeah, man. I've seen the Dwayne Johnson Witch Mountain. <laughs> yeah, I saw the Witch Mountain when I was age specific for them, but. Uh... <laughs> yep. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna suck it in a bit, and um and we actually do our plot synopsises here inspired by your show, so I'm 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 gonna do it. Oh, right on. Would you like to write all the ones we have to do for the next coming, say, eight or ten years? That would be great. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I got I got more sci-fi movies to write them about. <laughs> fine, fine. <laughs> but here we go. 
Lieutenant Savick, a Vulcan Starfleet officer, has the con when a distress signal comes in from the Kobayashi Maru, a freighter damaged in Klingon space. Savick violates treaty stipulations to try and save the ship, but finds her ship trapped by a Klingon assault. Despite the support of old-school 1701 Enterprise senior staff members, she cannot hold the line and the ship is doomed. Cue the mechanical opening of a bulkhead and the appearance of one Admiral, James T. Kirk. This was just a test. A character test all cadets are doomed to fail, save one Admiral James T. Kirk. Even a Vulcan has to wonder how he did that. That will all have to wait, though. The USS Enterprise is now a training ship, and its senior crew is due to take some cadets out for an interstellar joyride. Cut to the Starship Reliant. Commander Chekhov, who is another one of those Enterprise alumni, is on a mission to find a completely uninhabited world on which to test a new device, known as Genesis. This is not the one where Phil Collins drums, but where Peter Gabriel sings. Chekhov and his captain, Terrell, beam down to SETI Alpha 6. It seems promising, but it still may have microbial life. Or it may have the 300-year-old starship Botany Bay and a genetically engineered fellow named Khan and his team of very young-looking cohorts. This old nemesis of the Enterprise, and specifically James T. Kirk, may have been exiled to what was a garden planet 15 years previously, but that planet has since been knocked out of orbit and is now a hellscape. Khan is pissed. He puts mind-controlling, literal earworms into Chekhov and Terrell and proceeds to take over the Reliant. The Reliant sets their warp drive for Space Station Regular One, where Dr. Carol Marcus's team, which includes David, her son with Kirk, has been working on the Genesis Project. Dr. Marcus is flustered by this turn of events and contacts Kirk, though her message ends up garbled by the Reliant's jamming abilities. Kirk decides to take command of the Enterprise and investigate. The Enterprise is greeted by the Reliant, and the latter ship phasers the crap out of the former. Khan reveals himself to Kirk before the fatal blow, but Kirk manages to use some security code trickery to take a few choice shots at the Reliant. Both ships are crippled. While Commander Spock takes charge of repairs, Kirk, Dr. McCoy, and Savick beam over to the regular one station. They find some hanging, mutilated dead bodies and a blubbering but alive Chekhov and Captain Terrell. Dr. Marcus, Davis, uh, Davis, David, and a few others are unaccounted for. It seems they beamed into the nearby Class D chunk of rock below. Kirk and crew roll the dice and follow. They end up in a subterranean cave system, and son David immediately tries to attack his dad, possibly with good reason. Everyone chills out, though, and for a few seconds, until Chekhov and Terrell's mind control kicks in and Khan remotely commands them to kill Kirk. Terrell points the phaser the wrong way and vaporizes himself, while Chekhov screams again and passes out. In the ensuing chaos, Khan beans the Genesis device out of the cave. Kirk screams, Khan! 
Then Kirk gets hungry, and the group goes into the real Genesis Cave, an artificially created matrix of lush vegetation and life. Spock has finally gotten the Enterprise sort of, kind of, not really fixed, and beams the away team back. The crippled ship has neither the speed nor the firepower to take on the Reliant, so they fly into the nearby Mutara Nebula. Here, shields are useless and sensors are distorted. Using a bit of three-dimensional thinking, the Enterprise manages to hit the Reliant with game-ending photon torpedoes, but not before the Reliant damages the Enterprise's warp core. Plus, Khan has started the Genesis device's clock, and neither ship will survive the explosion. Spock fixes the warp core, but takes a fatal amount of radiation in the process. Still, the Enterprise warps out just in the nick of time, and Scotty breaks out his bagpipes for Scott, uh, Spock's funeral. Spock's quotation, final resting place, shall be the Genesis planet, newly formed by the Genesis device's explosion, interacting with the Matara Nebula's matter. Um, you just revealed another sign of the like generation gap between me and you, because you think Phil Collins' Genesis, I think 16-bit Sega Genesis. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, that, that was a well-placed Phil Collins reference. Yeah. Uh, very good. Nice. Yeah, it's, rare, it's rare to see like the association between Phil Collins and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was fantastic, me. you know? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, most of my knowledge on the background and the actors of this film is the fact that I've read Star Trek movie memories more times than I want to admit to. <laughs> it's a good book. I, yeah. I don't know who all wrote it, but it's a good book. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to think Shatner was just sitting there with a bourbon ranting and someone had to make sense out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly, I think it was Judy and Gar, uh, uh, Judith and Garfield, Reeve Stevens, who... Yeah have written a lot of that stuff they i think they collaborated a lot with shatner um that sounds right but you know they, they got good stories out of them so um so why not i i will say that you know uh when wrath of khan came out um it, it had to have been between star trek 2 and star trek 3 that i saw gene roddenberry on his college lecture circuit tour and and that was the question that was what everybody wanted to know is Oh my God! Why did you kill Spock? And when will he be back? And how are you going to get him back? I mean, it, you know, because nobody knew because we we didn't have people speculated and there were leaks, but it wasn't like now where everybody's got an opinion twenty four seven that gets published to the world twenty four seven. Yeah, because of my age, I got everything backwards. I saw I saw Star Trek three, then Star Trek two. I saw Return of the Jedi. I saw Return of the Jedi, then Empire, and finally Star Wars. <laughs> How did you get through life like that? I, uh, wow. Explains a lot about how Matt's brain works. 
do you read the end of a book first and then go uh, go to the start? Read who did it in an Agatha Christie novel and then start over? So like Pulp Fiction actually made sense then. Well, I was born in 79. So I rem- one of my first memories is like begging to my parents to take me to go see Empire and then being like, you're two years old, you can't go see that. So <laughs> when, re- when Return came out, my dad would take me, but the order got all jumbled. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, in the, uh, in the magazine sections uh, in, in bookstores, when we had bookstores like Walden mm-hmm. Books or B. Dalton, we still have Barnes and Nobles, but in the magazine sections, Starlog used to reign supreme as, as our, yes. um, I, I guess as our, our science fiction magazine, the only way that really got, you know, at least monthly information on, on science fiction, science fiction news and the trade. But there was one particular magazine, one issue where they highlighted on this photo of Harv Bennett and it said the man who killed Spock. Mm. And that's, that really kind of got people's attention because in that article, it talks about, you know, Harv Bennett coming in as what executive producer or co-executive producer and his choice to to do that and the there was you know then it kind of spun out into all of the 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 strategy of if we need to create an opening for leonard to come back then we'll do the remember sequence with mccoy so that they could transfer the katra and then we can you know springboard back into star trek 3 with an opening but i think that it was really i mean it it was really hard to get leonard back into the motion picture because we all know the motion picture was a springboard off of phase two of which leonard wasn't in right right um so he Leonard went in and out, but if the, that, but it's like, well, if we get you back as director for search for a Spock, will you come back? Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah. So soft land that photon torpedo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and because the gravitational forces on the Genesis planet were in flux and yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah we yeah. can get you back. We can get you back. Yeah. I think today they would have played that as the post credit scene where like after the cast, you would have seen the photon torpedo and like maybe that cracks open or something. Yeah. Is that, yeah. How, is that how we do it now? <laughs> yeah. A very Marvel ending to that. Yeah. You know, I think the only thing that I sort of regret about that movie is that it really opened the door so that then anybody who dies in any science fiction movie since then, you're left with the anticipation that they might come back. I mean, with the exception of in Firefly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or in Serenity, rather. Uh, but Well, it had always been a thing in comic books and stuff, but I guess it's introduced it for live-action things. Right, right. I mean, for, for a mainstream, you know, big science fiction movie, summer movie, and then it just sort of became this thing. And, and even within Star Trek, then, mm-hmm. oh, well, if a character dies in Star Trek, there's probably a way to get them back. And I, that's, that, that's a little unfortunate. Like, I mean, we, you know, we, we just wrapped Picard. I'm saying, can I spoil something? I'm not going to spoil Picard, but I'm, I'm just... Hmm. Uh, well, um, this one won't be going up for like a month, so basically feel free. <laughs> well, well I, I'll, I'll dance around it a little bit, but, but just to say that they kind of... Um, there was an opportunity in Picard to really leave some anticipation, to really leave uh, uh, an emotional moment and let it be. But uh, with all due respect to Lennon and McCartney, um, but you sort of resolve it within a few minutes. And, and it just sort of, instead of it really having uh, as much emotional weight as it could have, and I'm not saying it was devoid of that, uh, but at Star Trek, you just go like, Oh, sure. Well, of course, it's what will happen. 
you know, I mean, John, the, the thing uh, is that at the time, because uh, we had these really long spans of time between motion pictures, between, let's say it was 82 and 84, between the two Star Treks, and it was, mm-hmm. what, 77 to 80, and then 80 to 83 for Star yeah. Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return yeah. of the Jedi, at least you had time for those moments to percolate and to create the theory crafting and the fan communities. Yeah. I mean, think about it yeah. this way. In 80, Harrison Ford didn't know if he was coming back renegotiating his contract from Empire to Return of the Jedi. So they froze him. Right. Good idea. Whatever right. happens, he can either stay as a giant, you know, wall hanging in Jabba's palace, or he can get thawed out with a better contract. Sure, I get that. Same thing with Leonard. If they want him back, leave him an opening. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Yeah. But yeah. at least it's not instantaneously rewarded to the fans that we're bringing back a killed off character like they do now. Like right. all of a sudden... You binge watch 13 episodes or however many, and then six months later, everyone knows that X character is coming back because X character was popular and there's your marketing junket. So you have to put them on every social media feed ever. Yeah. And now there's your surprise, which isn't a surprise. Yep. Right? With Picard, I actually think it would have been really good if he had, they had kept that death. Yeah. I think that that was a perfect ending to the whole, not just that series, but the next gen. But it was under it was undermined because the whole way through I'm like, well, he's not right. He's not dead, <laughs> right? And um, to to use some dirty words here, uh, in Into Darkness, uh, one of the reasons I have big problems with that film is by the end of that film they've cured death. <laughs> yeah. Like so, there's no drama left in that series. <laughs> yeah, truly. Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of problems with that movie. That that's for another show, maybe. But yeah. we are. But we are talking about the Wrath of Khan. And but we technically are talking about God. the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, that, that's where they got all their best material. Um, I, I try. I really, honestly, try to have this conversation with people because. Um, I, I I want to understand what people are fans of. I want to understand what they got out of something that I didn't. And believe me, the J.J. Abrams movies, I, I've always been sort of pulling for those movies. I really enjoyed 09. Um, I really enjoyed Beyond. And I, I think it's a shame that Beyond didn't perform nearly as well as it could have. And even more of a shame that Into Darkness is the biggest grossing of those three <laughs> movies because it's the one that I have the, the biggest problem with. And I, I don't know, honestly, if it's just because I'm so stuck in my head about the Wrath of Khan or if it's the way that I try to justify it to myself, which is take a movie, take any movie, and if you're expression then as a creative professional director writer whatever is to take a well-known movie and just sort of take chunks of dialogue from it and throw it into your story and sort of sit back and wait for the world to tell you how clever you are uh, uh, by taking some of those lines and putting them into somebody else's mouth i i i, I don't see it you know um look i i, I firmly believe <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay, but wait, but wait, but wait. Tarantino, though, I, I think is very easily able to create new context, new meaning, um, and sort of his own parallel 
universe with all of that stuff. I, I, I know it partly undermines my argument about uh, <laughs> Star Trek Into Darkness. I think he's, he's maybe the exception that proves the rule because he knows how to do this well. And a lot of other directors try and do it and does just come across as copying. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, it, it's one thing if you're doing, if you're a Tarantino and you're doing Kill Bill where you're saying, okay, I've been influenced by all of these martial arts movies and I'm going to do my sort of ultimate mashup tribute to that genre, but create a new story within that as opposed to Star Trek doing Star Trek. I, I think that, that's where mm -hmm. I have the problem with it. And look, Star Trek hasn't been immune to it before. Star Trek did The Naked Now, where we already had The Naked Time, and they did it for the second episode of uh, Next Gen. And it just it, it made no sense. But at least they had 177 or 176 more episodes to follow where you could sort of wash that taste out of your mouth. I just had, uh, I, have a, I had a counter idea to that because I was talking to my best friend, Todd, and Todd uh, loves Into Darkness. But he, uh, he and I were the ones that were very well close to being literally assassinated at William Shatner's theatrical showing of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan uh, because oh dear. we were being so obnoxious. Because we know that movie so well. <laughs> yeah. And we were really hammered. Uh, but, okay, well, that, that helps. But we were talking about Into Darkness the other day, and, and he really likes it. And I asked him why, and he said because you know, he just really enjoys the, the freshness, the approach of how they took the story. And that got me into thinking, with, we're, we're of an audience that has the luxury of seeing Star Trek then and Star Trek now, and possibly Star Trek to come. Yeah. But then there are people coming in as an audience that have never seen uh, that Star Trek, our Star Trek, you know, the original series cast and the original series cast movies. So when they watch Into Darkness, they have no basis of comparison. So they're judging it on the merits of the story itself, rather than, I think, and it's fair to say, us putting that movie through the filter of what we believe it should have been, rather than what it is. So yeah. people are watching it and they're like, oh, this is a great movie, because obviously it makes sense that this guy changed his identity, he's genetically altered, Section 31 and the Admiral Marcus and blah, 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 blah. That makes total sense as a separate entity from Star Trek. Yeah. Right? But it doesn't make sense in the milieu of Star Trek movies. In, in knowing, and knowing the callbacks of what that movie is doing, it doesn't do itself any favors because there are, just because Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is the most iconic Star Trek movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Period. That's not, a, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Right? I mean, there's no other line in pop culture that as, at least from Star Trek, that is as resonant as the yelling of Khan. That scene alone has been parodied so many times. Right? Well, see, and I, I think, though, that that is my problem with it. Because what you're saying makes total sense, and that's why I sort of try to check myself and say, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I just bringing all my fan baggage to this as opposed to really enjoying this movie on its own merits? I mean, that, that's what it, it was very uh, important to me to understand. And I think Roger Ebert expressed it the best when he said, you know, when I write a review of a movie, I'm not comparing every movie to Citizen Kane. I'm just seeing how well does it stand up at against its own merits? How well does it accomplish what it sets out to do? And mm. I really, really do try to check myself when it comes to something like Into Darkness and say, okay, can I possibly leave behind my fan baggage here? I, I think 
honestly, what it comes down to, though, is that, you know, little things that that don't make sense that it seems like they could have made make sense. Like, I love Admiral Marcus. I think it's a great character. I think that's a very interesting plot thread to follow. Nobody should be uh, shocked or frightened at John Harrison saying that he's Khan. Who the hell is Khan? Nobody knows who Khan is. Like, that, that is a wasted moment in that movie. Um, uh, like we said, we cured death. Like, how, how then <laughs> do you justify Star Trek continuing with any stakes at all? Well, not only did they cure death, they also don't need spaceships anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have these trans The next uh, world should just be immortal beings beaming from planet to planet. There is the age yeah. thing, too. I have a 10-year-old daughter. Um, she kind of liked Discovery. She liked Star Trek 2009 okay. Um, one day I put on the Trouble with Tribbles, the, the one with the updated effects, and I had to turn it off within five minutes because she was just laughing at it. <laughs> I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure how she'd respond to Khan. We, uh, we haven't watched that one together yet. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know. I, but I, I just wonder, like, uh, and Norman, you mentioned it, you know, in Star Trek II, Kirk yelling Khan isn't, it is such an iconic moment mm-hmm. that George Costanza did it on Seinfeld. Exactly. It's such an iconic moment that people who have not seen The Wrath of Khan know that that happens. Yeah. And what worries me then is, first of all, you can't help but then be parodying the parody of yourself when you do it, again, in a Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a big, big problem. But again, just sort of taking the beats and taking those lines, it's sort of like if I wrote a, um, if I wrote a, uh, a romantic film that takes place under, uh, uh, under the, the threat of war in an occupied town at a bar, and I ended it with a tearful scene with the line, here's looking at you, kid, uh, that would be a problem because then I'm just stealing lines and trying to steal a moment from another movie. Speaking Hold on a second. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I got to correct you on that, John. It's not okay. that line. It's, you know what, John, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful, beautiful relationship. relationship. Yeah. I, 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 I was going for the romantic bit. Not, so was not I. Come on. Yeah. It's a great moment. It's a great moment. Yeah. Well, that's how I wrote stories when I was a kid. <laughs> Just really quick, uh, before before we um, move on, um, putting this in the production timeline, is this before or after the restaurant enterprise on Saturday Night Live? Do any of you guys uh, know before. That? that? Before. Yeah. They did yeah. that in 86. This is before. Okay. Yeah. Just... yeah. Oh, okay. That was quite a time after. Okay. I always wonder if that should have been Star Trek too, but <laughs> give me a... Shatner 86. Yeah. Oh, that's the same. That is the same sketch. Okay. That's kind of what I was getting at. There's also a TJ Hooker bit in there. and <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. To the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Um, shall we segue into the characters a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. actually, you've got to segue us back to the Wrath of Khan because we, we just did 20 minutes on uh, Into Darkness, and I apologize. We were talking about Spock's death, and um, the thing I wanted to talk about is 
I, it's easy to think that like fan overreactions and petitions and all of this are a modern phenomenon. Mm. But obviously they've been around as long as Star Trek, right? Yeah. Joe Trimble. Yeah. But they didn't have chat rooms. That's a big difference. No, but they were, well, they, exactly. They had to go around and do this in person and <laughs> sending letters around and fan scenes. <laughs> but they petitioned to bring the show back. They petitioned for another movie. And then they were like, no, 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 you can't kill Spock. And Wrath of Khan is just living proof that you don't listen to those people. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, the nice thing about it is that those stories traveled much more slowly. Mm. And you could usually then point back to one source and you could say, oh, Starlog has this. Starlog has this interview with uh, Harv Bennett. As opposed to now where it's literally just everybody all the time writing what they think and then typically able to make up something to give it some plausibility. Like, you know, what's happening now in fandom that's really ruining fandom is oh, we have these inside sources that told us this. And enough people buy it and share it that then that overtakes the actual information coming out of uh, a studio or coming out of a production. It's, um, yeah, it's a different time. But I mean, fan reaction has always been, look, I, I was right there with everybody um, when we learned that uh, the robot on next gen was going to be called data. And I just thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> and why are they putting a robot on the bridge? And why is there a kid on the show? This isn't lost in space. And, you know, but <laughs> who was I having that conversation with? I was having it with like maybe five other people who are Star Trek fans. Yeah. See, meanwhile, I was eight years old at the time and I got all the, the little figures of the, the crew with the, the low neck um, yes. collars and, and built the bridge out of blocks. <laughs> yeah, nice. Nice. Do you know what I love yeah. about the, uh, the approach of the characters in Star Trek 2 is that it seems like it, it was a more refined approach of what they were trying to do with Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was an even more refined approach of what they were doing with Star Trek Phase 2. And let's use James T. Kirk for an example. At Kirk, there's that really, really short clip of William Shatner and uh, the, the, the actor who played Robert Reed. He played Michael Brady, right? Mm, mm. And they were, it almost looked like test footage of Kirk lamenting the fact that he doesn't know if he can integrate himself in Starfleet anymore. Well, that's the same way that Admiral Kirk, especially in the novelization of, of the motion picture where Kirk feels like, who am I and how do I associate myself in the field anymore in Starfleet as opposed to having been manipulated by Admiral Nogura into riding a desk this whole time, being the poster child for the only Constitution-class starship that survived the five-year mission, the only one. So Nogura like, forced him to basically beat the war drum and sell those war bonds and make Starfleet what it was. But he's no longer out in the field. Will Decker's out in the field. How do I get to become Will Decker, the hotshot captain? with the crew, with my ship. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to hijack it. All right. Right? <laughs> but in Star yeah, Trek, he, two, I mean, that was motion picture. But in Star Trek 2, Kirk, you saw he was firmly entrenched in being the, the elder statesman, you know, yeah. like galloping across the cosmos as a game for the young. Right. Right? right. And then the horror was like, the hell it is. You know? <laughs> She's like, he goes, what do you think he means by that? Because he's retired himself to the fact that Starfleet is now his his brand as opposed to him actively engaging being in the field and seeing his opening uh his entrance of just carrying that book and being statesmanly 
to the very end where he's like, I feel young, right? That's a completely different Kirk. The arc in and of itself, part of him died when Spock died. And that part that survived made him feel young again to re-engage himself with Starfleet and to do something in Spock's name, to do something about this planet. So I saw that with almost every single character in a way, not to the same extent, but especially, especially with Kirk. I mean, he was bound to be an antique. And what does he do about it? He steals a ship. Again. <laughs> he gets it much more easily this time. <laughs> yeah, he does. This is kind of habit, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, no, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think this is one of the great things about Wrath of Khan is, is that um, I, I want to pick my words very carefully here because I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the sandbox that Gene Roddenberry created that we call Star Trek. It's equally important to remember that Gene Roddenberry only had his hand in a very limited amount of Star Trek. Um, and a lot of the really great stuff that we hold up as iconic happened either without him or after him. And anytime fresh blood comes into the Trek family, which is, well, all the time now, um, people will say, oh, well, you, you didn't hire a Star Trek fan. Well, Nick Meyer was not a Star Trek fan. Uh, Nick Meyer knew nothing about Star Trek, but he'd written uh, some great books and he was recognized as this young, fresh, uh, intellectually minded writer who could craft a great story. And, and that's what he did. And he found the emotional heart of this movie and he also structured it perfectly. Um, when you look at Wrath of Khan now, if you're really being critical, you go like, oh, there's only a couple of space battle scenes in this. Really, just two, <laughs> you know? And the good guy and the bad guy never meet in person. You know, there's a lot here that should not work as a movie, and yet it works brilliantly because you are so tied into these characters. You're so invested in who they are and what their journey is. I really think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I say I, I think we have to give credit to the the intellect of the person who is the the co-writer, or you know, pulled together all those disparate pieces and crafted it into a a script and a story that made sense, and then was lucky enough, and we're lucky enough to have him in the director's chair for it too. Yeah, I'll say one thing. I think that this movie is in kind of a gray area. Uh, we have. Part Bennett, television producer. We have all the phase two leftover sets and things. And then, as you said, we had uh, Nick Meyer as an actual filmmaker. So we're just in kind of this weird gray area between film and television production. But for Star Trek, that works quite well. Um, when Star Trek gets too big it on the, on the big screen, it, it can get a little ridiculous. Um, I, I agree. I, a friend of mine who is a huge James Bond fan um, and he does not love the Daniel Craig movies, but whatever. Uh, he only likes a very narrow slice of the Bond films. But he, he sort of, he has the same argument every time, which is, you know, whatever Barbara Broccoli or Michael G. Wilson say, you know, the last movie is a huge success. The next one is going to be even bigger. It'll have an even bigger budget and it'll be the best Bond yet. And my friend's argument is always, no, 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 no. Cut the budget in half. Just like don't don't always have that as your goal as we have to spend more money to make things blow up bigger. 
spend less, focus on the script, focus on the character, focus on everything else that, that needs to be in place to tell a story before you decide to do all of that. They literally did that between the motion picture and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. They cut the budget yep. in half. Yeah. If not more. Yeah, exactly. But that means, well, you were saying, oh, it only has two space battles because they don't have the budget to, oh, well, we want to have this action scene, so we're going to throw it in there. Everything that happens happens to serve the story. So you get the two space battles that you absolutely need for this story to work. And so you don't feel like, oh, there's a lack of action because you're so invested in that action. Whereas you watch a lot of modern bid-budget sci-fi action films, there's just like, oh, well, wouldn't it be cool to have this fight? So we're just going to throw it in there and the story bends to fit this spectacle in. The more and more and more you increase the budget in certain productions, the more and more and more you're, you're paying less attention to the, the crafting of the characters. Star Trek II really works better than most of the movies because you're focusing on the characters. You're focusing on the relationships. You're focusing on different stages of these characters' lives. For many of us, we grew up with them and now we're seeing them in the twilight of their careers or, or cresting into the twilight of their careers. Kirk knows that he has a, a finite amount of time. Spock knows that, you know, whatever you do, I'm with you. The crew is going to follow. But he knows that he's training an entire new group of cadets to take over. I mean, that's kind of like what Star Trek The Motion Picture was about. We never really got that, you know, with Will Decker and Ilea and all of the other trainees that were on the, on the Enterprise. Right. Uh, so, so with Star Trek II, what you're seeing is you're seeing just very honest, very introspective moments where some of these characters don't really understand at what stage of life they're in or what purpose they're serving. Kirk, it is literally kind of like in that whole um, labyrinthian monologue where he says, you know, there's a man out there who I haven't seen in 15 years who's trying to kill me. You know, you show me a son who'd be happy to help him. I mean, he is literally at his lowest low. He sees no way out until he's challenged with, okay, this is who I am. This is what I do. These are the problems that I solve. And this is my way out of it. I cheat death. That's what I do. Yeah. Right. The regrets will come later, but I'm serving the greater good because the greatest line of all time of any Star Trek movie ever comes out of this movie. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And Kirk knows that. And that's what Spock told him when he says, you take the ship. He knows that Kirk has a destiny. You know, he said that uh, commanding a starship is your last best destiny. Anything else would be considered a waste of material. He knows that. Mm. And Kirk has to embrace that. But he doesn't know how yet. He didn't know why until he got his butt kicked the very first time the <laughs> Ryan came, out of, <laughs> came, came into their orbit because... He just got caught with his pants down, Norman. He did. So, Is he, uh, yeah. he must have been senile. Yeah. <laughs> Something that um, should also not work in this movie, but does is we just had a discussion about how much depth Kirk gets in this movie. And, um, you know, when we put that against Khan, it's scenery chewing Ming the Merciless style villain who's absolutely fantastic. But He's made you know, John's ears perk yeah, up. Oh, what? Ming, yeah, Ming, Ming the Merciless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no we, we've, you know, we, we recently did Flash Gordon. Um, we talked a bit, we did the Black Hole where we were thinking about Reinhardt. Yes. Um, but getting back to, to yes, uh, Ricardo Monteplan is giving us the master class in chewing your scenery. I mean, maybe that's why Shatner and him couldn't share a scene. They'd eat all, eat all the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Could be. But, but look, you know, the only thing you have to understand about Khan, it, again, it goes back to the brilliance of how this movie is crafted. Yes, there is tremendous payoff if you've been a Star Trek fan for 15 years. Yes, there is tremendous payoff if you've seen Space Seed. However, everything that you need to know is established right up front, and it is totally understandable. This is a guy who was stranded. He watched his wife and everybody he cared about die. And he blames James T. Kirk. And he will spend every last ounce of energy that he has to go hurt Kirk as much as he possibly can. That is all you need to get out of it. And you totally get what is driving him. You totally get his wrath. As a bit, and believe oh, me. Oh, come on, John. You're better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally, as a guy who loves Ming the Merciless, like, come on, that, that is a comic book character who just wants to rule the universe. Why? Because it's just what he does. He, he rules, he is merciless, and uh, he will conquer. And there's not a whole lot of depth there. Uh, the movie actually gave him more depth <laughs> than that. Um, but, it, you know, Khan or I should say Ricardo Montalban is a scenery-chewing actor in that role, but it wouldn't work and it wouldn't be iconic if there wasn't some depth and something for us to sort of sink our teeth into as well. You know, I, I had this conversation with a, a friend of mine about uh, the uh, extraneous works, aside from what you see on screen. Like, I'm not a big fan of having to go and chase this episode or this comic book or this prequel novel right. or, you know, yeah. as much as I love Una McCormick, I didn't finish you know her Picard book because I I just don't do that I just don't really seek those avenues of of alternate storytelling that uh, in order to round out the actual thing that I should be watching yeah so I agree with what you're saying with Space Seed Space Seed really does lace the emotional uh, basically the emotional content of what you're going into when you watch Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan now they, they do a great job of of making Khan this way, but in state in space seed, he's a far more complex character. Yeah, far more oh, totally. complex character. Totally. Right? He has yeah. completely different needs. He has completely different machinations. He's not just this one unstoppable force. And that's that's literally what he was. I mean, his will was the reliant. You know, the reliant was willed into service by Khan. Yeah. Know? And yeah. it turned basically a science vessel into this ridiculous attack craft. Yeah. Right. It's almost as if he was spitting phasers from his eyes himself. <laughs> right? And the way that they shot the angle of the Reliant coming in at a vector, uh, that diagonal, yeah. that. Uh, dun, 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 dun. No, I love yeah. that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing is you, you saw almost kind of like the two, the two mental forces opposing each other. You had Kirk, you had the immovable object versus the irresistible force. Right. And what happens when they come to a head? And that, that's what I love about where, you know, these two characters are literally at this great crossroads of their career. Khan really doesn't have anything left but to revenge himself. Kirk doesn't really have anything left but to return himself to his former glory. He can't go. If he goes further into his career, he's doomed to a desk, right? Mm -hmm. He has to find a way back into his one great destiny, and that is to save the universe, save the galaxy. Well, there's yeah. only one savior of the universe. That's Flash. There is. That's Flash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forgive me you for make that. Make that very clear. Yeah. Right. And I think that he comes to that conclusion. But, you know, there are also, like, Chekhov has a great turn in this. You know, he, he, we get to see a little bit more of Chekhov, which should have been George's role. We all know that it should have been George's role. But mm. 
But Walter said, no, this is the most amount of lines I've ever gotten in any Star Trek movie or any TV show ever. (laughs) And he gets the Chekhov scream. Yeah, but I also think that uh, one character that can't be overlooked in this this movie is Savick. I think that Kirstie Mm. Alley brought such great, uh, a great breadth of, of, of youth and freshness to the role and a very strong female character, which again in science fiction at the time wasn't, um, wasn't the norm, right? And she was the great kind of that, uh, that character that uh, the audiences gravitate towards because she asked the questions, why this, why that? Did I do, did I do this, did I do that? And, and you, uh, you associate yourself with kind of like her, her uh, successes and failures, especially the Kobayashi Maru test or letting her hair down. <laughs> well, let's let's get a little bit. Let's get into the test. It's test time, y'all. Uh oh. All right. There they are. There they are. Not so wounded as we were led to believe. Uh, so yeah, before we completely move on from Kirk, there's something I saw caught in your notes a few times. At the start of this film, Shatner is definitely playing the character of Kirk. But by later films, he is playing Shatner. And basically it does that and through you, three, you four, five, maybe and six. maybe that switch happens during this film. Yeah, I, I put the con screen as the demarcation line where Shatner just full ham comes out. Like, fantastic, he does it the best. That's I want to see Shatner do that. <laughs> uh, but... You know, before that, he's still kind of doing a motion picture, kind of a restrained Kirk for the most part. He's a little warmer than he was in the motion picture. But after that, there's a whole lot more uh, Shatner in, in the Kirk character, I think, from the middle of this movie on through the sequels. I think that probably manifested itself more between four and five than I think now. Oh, definitely in five. <laughs> oh, by those, by like five and six, there's no question he is just Shatner. But <laughs> yeah, by this one, it's starting to come out a little more. But that's, I mean, that's, that's safe to say about almost with any actor who they're, they're defined by their personality and really not the, I mean, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson. I mean, you don't really see them as actors anymore. You don't see their characters, you see them. Yeah, I mean, fortunately with Shatner in Wrath of Khan, we get a lot of levels and, and, you know, that same guy who's yelling Khan is the same guy who's getting choked up at the funeral and we all get choked up when we watch him get choked up. It's a very genuine moment and it's played perfectly i think um but yeah by by the time you get to shatner in star trek six where he uh oh my god the 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 scene with the shapeshifter with iman and then uh what he's gonna he's fighting himself he's gonna kiss himself i think i was gonna kiss you it was a lifelong ambition you know it's just so it's hokey yeah even even in a movie that i love I love that movie, but it's not my favorite moment. In I mean, it, that's easily what Galaxy Quest was poking fun at. With oh, a, totally. You know, totally. that version of, of Shatner or yeah. Peter Quincy Taggart. Yeah. So. But I mean, see, here's the thing. The, the thing that I love about that con scream is that we all got fooled the first time we saw that. And we all thought this is Captain Kirk's rage and he can't hold his rage in anymore. And then... 
we see what happens afterward. We, we see that he is playing three-dimensional chess with Spock mm -hmm. and that they are steps ahead of Khan. And this is part of that long Khan, C-O-N, <laughs> in order to take down Khan. Um, that, that scream then takes on a new meaning. That mm -hmm. scream then is to drive home what they were doing as opposed to just saying, boy, he's really angry now. Right. If that's all it was, was just he's really angry now. Yeah, I, I think we would have a pretty strong case to say that was hokey. Mm -hmm. um, but that is the character Kirk telegraphing to his enemy. Oh, here, here's what's going on now. And yeah. telegraphing to his, his uh, first officer who's moving, listening in. Moving back to Savick, I guess that's the kind of tactical move that has her so fascinated about Kirk. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we went by the book, like Lieutenant Savick, <laughs> the hours would seem, would seem like, like days. days. <laughs> I mean, Khan is supposed to be like a super genius, but how did he not see through that code? He's book smart. <laughs> <laughs> right. No one ever said, no one ever said Khan was a super genius. That has not, that has not been established. He is a military dictator of sorts. He did so by charisma and military strategy and power, but it's not like he's this, you know, it's not like he's, a, you know, a calculated, you know, master of, I don't know, strategies. He's not yeah, good Napoleon at- Napoleon made some bad moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, Khan is not good at taking in new information. You know, that, that's a sign of intelligence. <laughs> All Khan wanted to hear was, is Kirk suffering? Yeah, he's suffering. Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do right? more of that. Yeah, yeah, do more of that. That's good. I'm good with that. Um, but that's not to say like, yeah, I mean, like we were also like, yeah, code. Hmm. That sounds like code to me. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Khan's like all like, yes, yes, the plan is working. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, that's but, the scream that I wanted. Yeah. But that also shows like that he's bent. Like Khan is just so bent, right? The Khan yeah. from Space Seed probably would have seen right through that, right? But right. this Khan is like, you know what, man, I'm just, I'm driving those bamboo splinters under his fingernails for sure now. Yeah. Right. And that's the whole thing. I, I had that exact same discussion, John, when um, a buddy of mine says that's that's what he was doing. I was like, oh, yeah, he was completely acting unhinged yeah. Yeah. to give Khan a false sense of security. And when he finally says what he says to Sap, he's like, oh, <laughs> what a fool. He's telling me his whole grand plan <laughs> right? because he's unhinged. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which when we go back to Into Darkness. Again, that's why that line loses <laughs> yes. some of its impact. It loses a lot of its impact. <laughs> that is coming from Spock. <laughs> it's better when he when he loses the toy. Yes, the claw, yeah, the claw game. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, we got I, I we have more of a crew. Do we want to talk about any of them? Uh, I just. Where was where was Takei and Shatner's relationship when they did this? <laughs> oh, well, that is a great question. Um, I, I love Takei in the movies, and and honestly, uh, going through all the episodes the way we did with Mission Log, and then right into the TOS, uh, well, animated series, and then into the TOS movies, it really drives home how the movies really solidified our love for those secondary characters because in the TV show, they really were secondary characters and there wasn't a whole lot to go from. Thank goodness we had uh, fanzines and we had people who wanted to obsess over all the details. So then those characters and those actors 
got their due when we got to um, feature films. So not always the best moments for George here, but certainly in the remainder movies, he's fantastic. And I, I love seeing more and more of Sulu. Um, we, we get the check off scream. Thank goodness you mentioned that. <laughs> so good. Um, I think they've gotten some face acting lessons, maybe from D. Kelly at this point. Uh, just yeah. in the movies, I noticed Decay Sulu, he just does, he's more responsive. Um, when in the beginning, when Savick gives the order, he just makes a perfect like you're a noob face. Yeah, and uh, and uh, with with McCoy just for two straight minutes having the oh my god she's driving the car look when Savick <laughs> takes the real Enterprise out of space dock. So I was definitely appreciating those things this time around with some of the um, the people a little lower on the cast list. Yeah, and I wish I wish McCoy had a little bit more to do in in Wrath of Khan because he had. He was more of the confidant that, that Kirk needed in the motion picture since Spock wasn't really in, uh, in, the, in the mentality that Spock needed to be as, as one of the three, the three pillars of, of that triumvirate. So with Spock being now the counselor to Kirk's needs, especially in that scene where, you know, he says, I have no ego to bruise, you take the ship, you know, there is that whole, uh, I guess they're, they're, they're colleagues now, they're equals as opposed to first officer and captain. You know, they're both operating in the same level of respect. So Spock had a lot more to do with Kirk's emotional development at that part of the, in that part of the movie. But the other two characters that I think that really just rounded out, obviously rounded out the, the cast of characters in this movie were B.B. Bash as Carol Marcus and Merritt Buttrick as David, as David Marcus, or in this case, you know, David, I guess Kirk, if he took his father's name. <laughs> I thought that they were neat because now we got to see a completely separate branch outside of Starfleet, this, this science branch, right? They weren't under the auspices of Starfleet. They weren't Starfleet science per se. They were kind of like a subcontractor, right? Mm -hmm. that, were, yeah. that they were on regular. Is this the first time we see any civilian life in Trek in Kirk's apartment? I don't, does, the original series doesn't have any of that, does it? Not on Earth, at least. Not on Earth. I... Uh, yeah, and we caught very, very little glimpse of what civilians were doing in, uh, in TOS. And I was just going to sort of expand on what you were saying, Norman, by saying this is another one of those story-type things. that we, We're kind of lucky that when we're talking about Wrath of Khan, we're only talking about Star Trek that came before being those 79 episodes and then those 22 TOS, uh, TAS episodes, and then the motion picture. So there's a lot less universe you have to bring to it. We're all just sort of going on uh, a much smaller set of data to mm -hmm. enjoy Wrath of Khan. So when you introduce a new couple of characters like Carol Marcus and David Marcus, it's great. Mm -hmm. I, and they completely flesh out pieces of Kirk's existence without us, the audience, having to be hit over the head with everything. It just feels right. It feels natural. You get it right away. You get the emotional stakes right away. Um, as opposed to where I think a lot of, not just Star Trek and not just science fiction, but a lot of sort of epic modern storytelling falls back on the idea like, 
oh, now to mix things up, we have to throw in a new character and we'll shock everybody by, uh, well, this is the unknown son or the unknown daughter or brother or sister or whatever. And that in itself has, to be, has become a trope. It's become a, a thing for writers to sort of just fall back onto. This is one of those rare examples. And it could just be because it was a relatively new thing, definitely a new thing for us as Star Trek fans, where it just felt like, of course, of course, we've seen Kirk have these short-term, quote-unquote, relationships <laughs> before. <laughs> we don't know where those have led. We don't know what the emotional fallout from those has been either. Right. So uh, I thought it was handled so well. Uh, my only regret from that movie is that we didn't get more of Carol Marcus later, and we killed off David in the next movie. Um, it raised the emotional stakes there for sure, certainly, uh, but too bad that we didn't get even more out of him before that point came. Well, it gets to resonate through all the sequels, too. So David dies in three, but it's still it's still a thing in six, uh, which is nice. It's, it's not like in the original series where Kirk loses his, what, brother and nephew, or not nephew, but anyway, we never hear them again. Yeah, oh, <laughs> never to be heard from again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and think about, you know, Kirk's childhood. You know, we, we explore that in one episode in Conscious of the King, where we learn about Kodos the Executioner and these 4,000 colonists who were allowed to die and like how this shaped Kirk's childhood. Like, yeah, we'll never talk about that again. <laughs> you know? Him and Riley, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Him yeah, and yeah. Riley. Yeah. You know, also, uh, we had some really good like guest star character actors that were in this uh, Paul Winfield, you know, as Captain uh, Tyrell, fantastic, so fantastic. Even though he turned the phaser on himself. He's just- yeah. My note for him was uh, Paul Winfield, ultimate beard. Yeah. He was great. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he looked fantastic with a, and I'll get to the monster, my love for monster maroons later. Um, <laughs> we had Judson Scott, who was an up and coming yeah. actor at the time. You know, he was um, as, as Joachim, uh, Khan's yep. son or his ward or, a completely different looking than the Joachim from Space Seed, who was not blonde <laughs> right. or, yeah, or, really or as white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're right. It was. It, it's a little funny that like uh, you had kind of like all the heavy metal rock and roller type of road warrior esque looking, you know, uh, uh, followers from the Botany Bay. Yeah, I wrote Khan Beyond Thunderdome in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't they weren't they weren't uh, unaware of the the science fiction genre of the time, like what's going on with say like you know Miller's Mad Max and you know things of that nature. But I also thought that um, uh, that we also uh, the the cameo of Lieutenant Kyle on the Reliant, who used to be Chief Engineer Kyle, or not Chief Engineer, but um, uh, Transporter Chief Kyle. Yes. Uh, on the Enterprise, made a little bit of a guest appearance uh, yeah. there. Rand wasn't in Wrath of Khan, I don't believe. No, no. I think her last appearance is in motion picture. Yeah, she she shows up in three. Remember, yeah. she's at space dock. Yep, and then uh, cool. yeah. four, she was doing. Four, um, she's know, she on was, Earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then TMP, but uh, she was probably just haunted by the the tragic loss of uh, Sonak. Yeah, from TMP. <laughs> yes. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault, Rand. <laughs> That's some PTSD. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I never remember her three and four appearances, but I remember the one in motion picture quite strongly. Well, she make it's not her fault, but yeah, she yeah. makes a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's not her fault because Kirk's behind the controls. <laughs> no more signal. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like uh, we need more signal. N really, that's 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 all you got for me. We need more yeah. signal. I could, yeah, I know that. That's what they taught us in it's Transporter like, Academy. Or it's like Kirk calling down to engineering, say, if you tried auxiliary power, like no, what? that. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> there's this huge engine room. He switched it just rolls his eyes. He's like, aye, aye, sir. <laughs> like, of course. Like, that would be my next guess, would be auxiliary power. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's, uh, obviously, there's Ike Eisenman as uh, Peter Preston. Yeah. Scotty's nephew. Yeah. Who had a much bigger role in the director's cut. Yes. <laughs> um, we said McCoy didn't have much of a role here, but one thing I've noticed, especially since I passed 40 years of age, is I'm totally down with his kind of disco hobo style and uh, the motion picture in this. His civilian clothes, I, I want that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, that off, man. He looks great. Frank Jenks, I think his name is. He uh, is a cosplayer from Star Trek convention who pulls off an yes. amazing disco bones. Sans beard. <laughs> but he looks has some medallions. amazing, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, not to downplay, not to downplay DeForest's, you know, um, involvement in this because he does literally have one of the most important scenes in the movie, and that's the transference of Spock's Katra before Spock goes into the main energizer chamber. I mean, that literally is uh, the catalyst for the sequel. And if it weren't okay. for that, you know, it also, it, it also allows, you know, uh, uh, DeForest, a great line, you know, in there, he, he was like, oh, are you going out, out of your Vulcan mind? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then oh, of course, uh, right before they look at the Genesis tapes, they have the whole, you know, now watch out, here comes Genesis, you know, we'll do it for you in six minutes. It uh -huh. starts the banter off, the, the banter of the, of the holy triumvirate that is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And I find I agree with his old man rants also since I fast 40. <laughs> Going out to space, scattering your atoms, it all seems like horrible ideas. <laughs> so you are not wrong, Bones. Yeah. yeah. Both him and Carl Urban, they're both correct. Ah, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely one that pulled it off in the Kelvin verse. <laughs> yep. So we normally ask the question at the end of one of these podcasts, oh, does this film still hold up today? <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. Can you get back to me on that, please? <laughs> you mentioned earlier the, uh, the Big, Big Lebowski syndrome. Like, you've seen it so many times, you can't watch it again. Uh, for me, this has the Ocarina of Time syndrome, um, where because it's so beloved as the best one, I find it very difficult to call it my favourite. Hmm. I feel like that's not saying anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, what's your favorite thing to eat? Food. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we teach English here. We get that as a question and answer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> we have so much in common. This is that's great. I Do you like food? <laughs> do you like Wrath of Khan? Well, yeah, of course I do. But that doesn't tell you anything about me. I still got to show to my daughter and find out if she'll buy into it, though. <laughs> we don't know. Um, for me, I mean, it holds up in part because of the retro thing, though. I mean, watching this now, it's like 
having a ride through Epcot Center's Lost uh, Attraction Horizons. <laughs> oh, wait. All right. Are we going to start another podcast here? Because I will talk to you for six hours about Horizons. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hesitated on saying that. <laughs> oh, man. I am the dude who will watch all the ride-through videos, the documentary videos. I love that that's, with a passion. Go that's ahead. That's Matt's all life as well. <laughs> yeah. The, I think the Genesis film here in part started my, my weird... Um, joy of watching ancient or old educational films too. So yeah, I'm right. down with all that. Right, <laughs> right, right. But uh, yeah, the the design here definitely felt very um, horizons, and it's a mis mismatch. We know that's the battle bridge now because we've seen TNG. We know those hallways are there. Discovery's Enterprise really aped uh, things like the docking bay quite well. I noticed on this view. So uh, it was almost a little jarring this time. Uh, not to the movie's fault, just there's several different styles kind of juxtaposed that we can see in retrospect. I guess uh, for me, does this movie hold up uh, and does it withstand the test of time? That sounds familiar. <laughs> I haven't said that before. <laughs> right. It does because it asks that universal Star Trek theme and it puts that philosophy of Star Trek forward more than any other film, in my opinion, more than any other Star Trek film, I should say, in my opinion. And that is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. When you really take a look at the, philo uh, the philosophical ramifications of that, and this is post-Gene. I mm -hmm. wish it weren't, because I really want to associate that with Gene, but that was, that was a piece of writing done by Nicholas Meyer, and probably in part with Harv Bennett. Mm -hmm. But that is, that's a philosophy that I have tried to live by ever since that I saw that when I was a kid and was able to finally understand it probably a little bit more in my teens. So think about what Spock did. The needs of entire galaxy was greater than the needs of anyone in the enterprise or his self. Sometimes this movie gets a bit for being a little too militaristic, uh, but like you said, the philosophy at the core holds. I mean, for geeks like us, this, this sort of is our New Testament. <laughs> like, you... Just because, you know, I mean, a lot of people take a look at, again, what Star Trek looks like now, very much like the uniform that you're wearing. They, they associate what Star Trek looks like now with the, the Technicolor look of the original 1960s series that has been aped, as you put it, with the J.J. Abrams. They wanted to return it back to that very bright, colorful look. But for the longest time, from 82 to 91, 92, in the motion pictures, and even to some references like um, Cause and Effect with, uh, with uh, Kelsey Grammer playing Captain Morgan Bateman. Yep, you just named my favorite TNG episode. <laughs> they still reference the Monster Maroon because they go back to that era. So, sure, it looks very nautical. That's what Nicholas Meyer said. He, he makes no apologies for that, but he wanted to take Star Trek a certain way. But if you, if you look past that, if you look past kind of like that militaristic, uniformed look, what we're, what we're really going for is that there are moments in this where people doubt their ability and the core of who they are, especially Kirk. Savick does at the beginning because she doesn't understand what the test means. She doesn't understand that it's a test of character. And when she has to do what she needs to do, like in three, what she's doing is a test of her character. She has to let David suffer so that Spock can move on. That's her test of her character. It's not the right or wrong choice. That's just what she has to live with. That's what everybody does in Star Trek II. Everyone has to make that choice that they can live with, right or wrong. But, the needs, but that has to be also put into the equation of the needs of the many. So is it the right choice? Maybe. Is it the wrong choice? Maybe. But it's a choice you have to live with. 
And it's the choice that you have to be able to justify every single day of your life after making that choice. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it worth it? Is it not? Hmm. But did you do so for the greater good? Or did you do so at the risk of yourself? So that's why since 1982, that movie or this movie has influenced my life in, in this manner. And I think that holds up better because taking us right back to the start of this podcast, at the end of this film, Spock does stay dead. Yeah. Of course, we have sequels where he comes back, but in this film, he makes that sacrifice and it actually has meaning and we get time to take it in and feel those emotions. Yeah, it, it gets to sit with you and resonate. And um, the, that's part of why this movie is so good. I, I think, Norman, you, you've hit the moral meaning message very well. To me, I think the part of the underlying theme here is just aging and, and these characters finding themselves in this place after time. Because clearly in motion picture, they were sort of partly ignoring that that time had passed, you know, that's only supposed to take place a few years after the original five-year mission. And then we're just ready to go out into the galaxy again. Um, I think there's something about Wrath of Khan that holds up just because it is an efficiently told story. And I love it, whether it's in a TV episode or a movie or what have you, where you can just boil it down and tell the story and not bog it down with a lot of extraneous, unnecessary details. This is a movie that by design was told efficiently because you cut the budget, you moved it over to the uh, TV production arm of Paramount, and uh, took all these script elements, handed it to somebody else, which I feel like is always a great idea when you can let somebody else kill your darlings, um, to use a journalistic term there let somebody else come in with a fresh pair of eyes and just say, oh, okay, this works, this works, this works. All the other stuff is going to go so we can tell the best story that we can. And they nailed it. They nailed it with this one. Um, is this the best Star Trek movie? In, in many ways, yes, but there are also a lot of other best Star Trek movies because Star Trek is a very big place to play. Star Trek is, is many different stories told in many different ways with many different points and, and different messages within them. Um, I like the message here that, that we are introduced to, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, probably my favorite movie now, and that might change if you check back with me in six months or a year or two years or whatever, is the motion picture partly because of its style, but partly because of its message and the way that it deals with um, sort of looking at humanity's place in the universe. But that's the nice thing about Star Trek is that there isn't just one message and there isn't just one type of storytelling. And to me, Wrath of Khan works as many different kinds of storytelling, but first and foremost, it is super entertaining because it starts and does not let up until the end and the emotional beats are earned. And that is absolutely critical when you're making an action movie, a high, high concept sci-fi movie. If you don't buy the emotional moments, then all the other stuff can just go away. You, it, it has no meaning anymore. Yeah, I guess I see this as the best one is, is in that nice package. It's nice and streamlined, it keeps moving. Um, 
I have a, definitely a big soft spot for the motion picture. And the past few years, the ones I usually get around to watching are the motion picture five and Insurrection. <laughs> Insurre- Insurrection actually made, being very close to my favorite. So, <laughs> Yeah. Cool. I mean, Insurrection, again, Insurrection is a movie told in a different way for a Star Trek movie, but has very Star Trek messages in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, that, that is not a failure in, in my book. Yeah, watching it this time around was, I guess it was like a, I haven't been to a high school reunion, but it felt like that. It's, it's been long enough that I could really get into it and notice some new things and see how it's aged. Um, right, right. The other interesting thing about a movie like this, especially when you've seen it, theatrically and 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 uh throughout the decades is that the the message as much as it meant to you uh something and like say like in your 10 year old self or your 20 year old self it means so many different things later say in your nearly 50 year old self which is where i'm closing the gap on you know i'm 48 so between 10 and 48 that movie or this movie has meant so many different things to me during the course of my life as i needed it no other Star Trek movie has been able to do that because no other Star Trek movie has had the depth of, of a story that I needed in terms of the roundness of that depth, in terms of the layering of that depth. I mean, when you're younger, the action. Still to this date, I don't care how much money you blow on a budget, <laughs> nothing is better than the Battle of the Mitar Nebula. Yes. One, five, three, mark four. So, you know, it, that's just because those, those, those wills are just getting forced at each other through machinery, you know, Kirk's will versus Khan's will through the ships. But then you get older, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of feel like Kirk. I just don't, I just don't, I don't feel like, I feel old. <laughs> I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, millennial yeah, I feel worn out. You know? yeah. <laughs> I feel like butter stretched over too much bread. Not wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> no, but it's true though. It's uh, with anything, you know, I'm sure that people that have seen the um, first contact, maybe they said they saw first contact and said, you know what, this is a great action film. And later on, it's a completely different film for them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 30, you know, 20 years later. So it really all depends on the context and of where you are and the content of how you absorb at the time. Um, I know we need to be wrapping up. So would you guys like to uh, tell the good folks where they can find Mission Log? Sure. Uh, Best place to find us and everything that we do is podcast.roddenberry.com. If you go there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Trek Files, all the other shows that are under the Roddenberry umbrella, and that'll connect you to our social media as well. So podcasts.roddenberry.com. If you're looking for me personally uh, on Twitter at DVD geeks and uh, Norman, if you want to share yours, you go right ahead or not. I know you, you keep many secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Now this way, if you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, you can follow me at lounge lizard. That's L A O N G E lizard. Uh, I, I just basically post um, all of my updates about being on mission log <laughs> on that. You could also follow me at uh, Zocalo Livecast. That's where I do my Babylon 5 live show on YouTube every Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with my good friend, Charlotte Schmidt. And that's the other passion of my life. Great passion of my life is Babylon 5. And as for us, if you're listening to Matt and Lutz Sci-Fi Sanctuary, you're, you're already here, so... Well, I guess leave it there today. <laughs> I just want to get one more thing off my chest about Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah, sure. So Kirk says at the funeral, of all the souls that I encountered in my travels, his was the most 
Human. Chauvinist. Spock would have hated that. That's really disrespectful. Spock was constantly pointing out that he's not human. Oh, I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I, I, I think now you've I just think, opened up another uh, hour of your show. I, 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 I think Star Trek: The Motion Picture justifies that line. It justifies that moment, and that is what that that moment of sacrifice uh, is what absolutely cemented uh, Spock. Spock's log- logical side with his human emotional side. The single act, Jim. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. You gotta do the, the fist bump thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how you get it going. But uh, uh, John and Norman, many thanks for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Oh, thank uh, you as- so much. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. As for us, this has been uh, Matt. This has been Luke. And Luke, hit the transporters and get them out of our sanctuary. Can I say what I normally say? Am I, I, I thought you'd engage it. I was going to add that effect in. Now, well, we like to kick our guests out, but we normally have a sign-off, but it involves the F words. So. <laughs> you could just uh, okay. Phasers. Get get the phaser out of our sanctuary. <laughs> iPad for a moment. I still want to scream like Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> but that's jumping the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can jump whatever timelines you want to here. <laughs> we also uh, don't mind insane tangents. Yeah. Prayers for static. The Klingons don't take prisoners. Right. We're, we're trying to keep our language clean for today, but sometimes we do talk about things like. Punching Jeff Bezos in the face if you meet him. <laughs> you know, you, you express that in a clean way. So, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want not clean, go back to our High Life episode. <laughs> if you dare watch that movie. <laughs>